0: Good morning, Clovis Hills. Good to be back with you. We had a wonderful, uh, kind of a just exotic service last week with the, the dan- you know the dancers and the gymnastics. That was just spectacular. Ability Sunday. Uh, Pastor Sean is so creative to open it up for things like that. But we're going to go back now to the story of David. But we are turning a page. Uh, we've been start looking at the story of David in First Samuel. And uh, that series of five messages was called The Rise of the King. Because David was never quite king. He was on his way to becoming king. Today we move over into 2 Samuel. I mean, th- these next uh, short series will be called The Reign of the King. This is after David became king. What kind of uh, things can we learn from his life that we could apply to our lives? And uh, at, at the time that we meet him here in chapter 7, where I'm going to pick it up, David has consolidated the kingdom of Israel, and he's now the king. Saul has died in uh, the very end of uh, of 1 Samuel. And then he conquered Jerusalem, and he built uh, kind of his palace in Jerusalem, and he's considering building a temple for God. So David's had nothing but success, success, success by the grace of God, and now he's considering building a temple. He is at the pinnacle of his power, and uh, when this idea of building a temple comes up, that's where we meet David today in chapter seven. Uh, so he he's just just got there, and he's still dreaming new dreams. But this time, God says no. So if you're able, if you could stand in honor of God's word, uh, Roxanne's going to start reading from Second Samuel chapter seven.
1: After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies, he said to Nathan the prophet, "Here I am living in a house of cedar." But well, the ark of God remains in a tent. The word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I took you from the pastor, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great. The Lord himself will establish the house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, Sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? This is the word of the Lord.
0: Amen. And you may be seated. Now, we're going to look at this, and I want to try to apply lessons from David's life to us because David has gone through a lot to reach this point in his life. And uh, in this prayer exchange between he and God, we learn a lot. <clears throat> and so uh, I sort of put down three. Uh, if you have your program, you can open it up, and you will see Phil, uh, three point, uh, four points. And I actually have fill on the blanks, which I haven't done lately, but I thought this time fitted correctly. So number one, the first point I want to get across as we look at this David's life out of this passage is that David's God can raise up the humble. David's God, the God of Israel, the God of David, can raise up humble people from almost impossible lengths of depths all the way to impossible heights. And so as we, just to anchor my thoughts, rereading verse 8 and 9, he says, I took you from the pasture. Now think about that from tending the flock that's like the lowliest thing you could possibly do david is on his way during his uh, younger years to being a nobody in in a big world and yet that's not how he ended because god took him from the pasture and he appointed him ruler over my people israel and i have been with you god says uh... wherever you have gone i've cut off all your enemies from before you so god is reminding him of just how far God has seen him. And I, I want to emphasize this because it, I want you and I to get it. We need, you know, this, we need David's God to be our God. If I was going to give you a sermon the, sermon, the whole sermon in a sentence, I want you to join your life to David's God. I want you to have an eternal God that can see you out of whatever difficult, broken, lowly places you get stuck in, or who also could uh, tell you no when you need to hear no. But right now I want you to look at just how how humble the beginning was. Uh, When he says he took him out of the pasture, it just reminds me of my own life. My dad came from Oklahoma right after World War II, and he was a farm laborer. He wasn't a farmer, he didn't own a farm. He worked for a guy who was the farmer. In fact, we lived in houses provided by uh, the farm owner, the farmer himself. My dad did jobs that we think of as Hispanics or people coming from Mexico do today on the farms all around the San Joaquin Valley. And so my dad gave to me what he had, which was the ability to work 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week on a farm. So when I was 12 years old, dad got me a job paying, I I think it was 75 cents an hour. Now, Won't that make a 12 year old excited? 75 cents an hour for 12 hours a day. And he takes you out in the field with a little uh, you know, lunch pail, and he says, now I'll be back in about 12 hours. You go down this way, when you reach the end, you flip it around, you come back this way. And you flip it around, you go back that way. And you try not to go stark raving mad until I come back and pick you up. And then we'll do it again tomorrow. That was my life from age 12 to about 21 when I graduated from college. Go to school, then come home and go to work. Work all summer while all my friends are doing cool things. And go back to school. And that that was it. That's what he gave me. And so that sense that God can can come alongside. And and I I really resonate with David's uh, prayer at the end where he says, Ah, sovereign Lord, who am I? What is my family that you brought me all this way and blessed in so many ways? And I'd like all of us, you know, if we have God as our God, we can have that same kind of thing where God sees us through difficult times. Then he also indicates how many. Uh, enemies he's overcome. You, you remember that David lived in, uh, in uh, Saul's palace for a while, except Saul started throwing spears at him until he thought he was going to be killed. And David and Jonathan, Saul's son, got together and agreed, you better get out of, get, get out of the palace because he's eventually going to kill you. So he goes into the desert and it didn't end there. For the next four years approximately, uh, Saul comes out not with a spear, but with an army chasing David to kill him because he's filled with jealousy for the way the Lord is blessing David. And uh, Sean, in some of his messages in the last month, has talked about how close some of those calls were where Saul almost got him and David behaved uprightly. And then it got so bad that David had to leave the country. So about four years, he lived among the Philistines in a town called Ziklag. And he was actually just chased out of his own country because he figured, eventually, Saul's going to kill me if I stay living in Israel. Now, with all that said, the lowest point of David's career, kind of when he hit bottom, is found in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And in three verses, I want to read you what bottom looked like. David had a few men that would go around with him and kind of allied raids with the Philistines on various villages, not not necessarily uh, Israelite villages, but other villages, and as they were coming back from a certain uh, situation, they found their own little town and all all of their belongings destroyed. I want to pick it up and just read to you what it says at 1 Samuel 30. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Have you ever been that down? Where you're so despairing, you just have no energy. You've been sad as long as you just have nothing left. It goes on to say that David's two wives had been captured. And David was greatly distressed because the men, that few friends he had left, he had just lost everything, wife, family, possessions. Now the very last friendships, He was distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Because each of those men was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Now, I want to take you back to that moment when David has, he's hit bottom. He's been promised years ago, years ago, you know, a couple of decades ago, that he was going to be the next king. But the king keeps trying to kill him. So much so that he's now in full exile and while in full exile, he's been there probably four years in exile, he comes back to his, his with his few band of friends and his, his home's burned down, his wife and children are taken, and his own friends now are talking of killing him. It's the bottom of bottoms. You ever had one of those? Now, we have some younger uh, students here and hopefully none of you have had that yet, but I do want you to know that this life has that kind of potential. It's very few people that get through this life and just reach the American dream and have none of that kind of hit bottom, broken-hearted despair. So I do think you have to be prepared. You need a God that can raise you up when you hit that kind of bottom. But I've had those. You know, sometimes it happens when uh, you know you, your marriage just isn't, it isn't working and you think it's over. It, we're, we're not, or some of you have gone through a divorce and that horrible sense that comes from that. You thought you would never be the one. I've heard my son say this a lot. I never thought this would happen to me. And uh, so many broken dreams. Or maybe it's job or health or, or loved ones. I mean, there's lots of ways to just have your heart you know, broken. Now, here's what, I, here's what I want you to catch, though. This is the important point. When you hit that kind of dark, despairing bottom, generally speaking, people do one of two things. One of two things, one, and it's probably the most normal thing, is that you, you say when everything is destroyed and it looks like you have no, no future, you say, why is this happening to me, and God, why did you let this happen to me, and I'm never going to speak to you again? I know more people who in the dark moments turned their back on God, thinking they were going to punish God or be angry at him at allowing this, rather than understanding he was their only hope for getting out of the jail they were in. And I've seen people go ahead and destroy the remainder of what they had of dignity or, or of integrity and, uh, and really digging the hole deeper so that by the time they did come to their senses, even more things and more people were wounded and destroyed. One of the things that people do is in the dark times, they turn away from God. But here's the key for David. David, in his despair, turned to the Lord and he found strength in the Lord and was given the go to go that he still had a chance to regain his family. And so th- they tells that story in the rest of this chapter 30. And then here, here's the thing that just amazes me. On the day that David was having his worst day ever, you were three days away from King Saul being dead. And the whole people of Israel looking to David to bring him back into Israel and to make him king. He was at his lowest point while finding strength in God three days from an absolute turnaround. See, that's the kind of God that you need in your life. A God who, when we are humble, can bring us from the lowliest and bring us all the way up to be all that God wants us to be. And I, 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 I don't know how to say this, you know, uh, because from my perspective, I get to see this with some perspective. Like, let me just give you some context with me. I turned 67 years old uh, last month and I became a Christian when I was 17, about the age of many of you right here. So I've had about 50 years of living with the Lord. There have been exotically exorbitant times of joy and, and what have you, and there have been times of desperate darkness when I thought life was over as I knew it, and I would ne- I'd still you know, kind of be in that pasture and be a nobody till forever. And it, I've, I've seen all of that, but now over 50 years, I can see the grace of God Oh, helping me overcome all of my obstacles as, as the times when I got down, I would go to the Lord, not run away from the Lord. By the way, at, at 67, I have a friend uh, who gave me this. It cracked me up when I first heard it. Uh, he's, he, he, anyway, we, we sat down, and, and he said, How old are you I'm 67? He says, Well, you know, once you get into your 70s, he said, That's the dying zone. Anybody ever heard that? I'd never heard that in my whole life, and I'm per- I read. I mean, who says that? I said, what are you talking about? The 70s are your dying. So well, how, what he was trying to get across, I'll explain that first, is, is that you should get your house in order so that if something happened and you had a rapid uh, you know, decay of health or what have you, that everything would be in order. Because once you're in, se- in your 70s, and here, here's kind of the thought process, you see in people in their 70s all the time. Uh, they're doing great one day, and three weeks later, they're dead. And you know, I, thought, I thought about that, and I thought, heck, I've seen that happen. It, you know, your body's just frail enough. You, you have a little hiccup, and next thing you know, they're buried. It's like, holy smoke. So his point was, get your, get your things in order. So I just want to say, giving the message here today, I'm not in the dying zone yet. i got three years to go. I feel sorry for some of you that are getting the news today. You're in the dying zone. But the message, of course, is just to get your house in order, just in case. But what I want you to see is, I don't know how old David was exactly, but there, there comes a time when you can look back and you can see the hand of the Lord and how he can raise you up if you stay humble before him, if you seek him for strength. And you're going to face things that are bigger than you and me. And you're going to need the God of David. On your side. Now, the other part of this, the flip side of this uh, thing, is that number two, that uh, David's God can humble the proud. He can take the very proud and he can tell them no. He can stop them. Now, the interesting thing here is that David has on his mind to build a temple for the Lord. I just want you to see David starts humble, you know, struggle, success, struggle, success, struggle, and he's gone, you know, the curve of his life is straight up. No one has ever really told David no. And here he is, probably the most powerful man in the Middle East in his day. And God says no to him. Now, I I want you to let that soak in because that just feels like, well, what's the big deal? So one of the great joys of my life right now are the two grandsons that live close to me. I actually love all of my grandchildren, but I get to see these guys often. Uh, One's five years old, one's two years old, and the two-year-old... Right now, he and I, we are buds, man. I am just enough of a teddy bear and doofus that we are, we, we th- I think like a two-year-old. So we have a lot of fun. And when he sees me, it's Papa. In fact, last night he was at church and when they, uh, when they let him out of children's church and we're just still fellowshipping around, he will start saying Papa loud, fortunately, running at me 100 miles an hour. And you better, you better be ready because he'll take you out at the knees if you don't. Because he's just, and he's, it's all joy. So it's all joy in my heart. So I tell you that to say this. Three weeks ago, Papa had to say no to the two-year-old. Anybody here said no to a two-year-old? Does it go well? No. I'm surprised. From Papa the king, you know, the warm, fuzzy teddy bear Papa to, I mean, the the only tools a two-year-old has, at least our our two-year-old, Zachary, is he gets loud and vicious, and he makes everybody miserable that's in a half-mile radius. In fact, you get the feeling if he had something sharp, he would cut you. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Telling people no. So here's the first time David gets to hear no. And I want to read it to you because it's kind of interesting how, how this comes about. He's got the idea, I'm going to get further glory by building God this great temple. I love the Lord, and I want to build him something special. So the Lord responds to him, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? And verse 11 says, the Lord himself will build a house for you. It's interesting that God turns the table on him. It's not that he's saying no to punish you or no that, you know, some, you know, I'm going to knock you down or something, but I want to give you, you think you want to give me something, I want to give you something. Now sometimes the proud actually do need to be taken down a notch. Uh, I was reminded uh, when I was thinking of all of this of, of the story of Steve Jobs. So Steve Jobs in starting Apple and he had all this success very young, but his personality and, and people skills were t- terrible. In fact, one of his employees said, I would like to ask him, why are you so mean? He was volatile, uh, abrasive, I mean he, he was not, it was not pleasant to be around him. And he didn't spare anybody in, anywhere in the circle or the organization. But at age 30, his board at Apple had had enough of his proud, impetuous, you know, just spewing on everybody and thinking he's the, he's, you know, kind of God's answer to everything in the world and he's always right. And they fired him. Now, I don't know if that humbled him right away or not. Uh, I think it's quite possible that he went away thinking they made a mistake because I'm still the king of all marketing, and I'm going to show them. I'm going to build a company bigger than them. So he started Next, which created a lot of innovative stuff that later was used by Apple when he went back. But while he was the president of Next, they had innovative quality stuff, and it on the marketplace, it just died. He burned through millions and millions and millions of other investors' cash as the CEO of Next he failed so much so that when he finally was invited back into Apple one of the board members from the time he said the best thing we ever did for Steve is when we fired him see sometimes you need to be told no because you're not ready to handle more you need some humility and certainly in God's kingdom you don't get God's favor by being proud in fact the Bible says that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Sometimes, and when God tells you no, it's not necessarily to punish you or to hurt you. It's to shape you, to be worthy of something higher. So here in in David's case, I love this. The Lord says, you think you're going to build me a house? I don't need a house. I'm going to build you a house. Now, just for those of you that don't know, what he tells us in another place, another passage, not this chapter, that he's going to let Solomon, David's son, build the temple, and David, you can save up all the money so that Solomon will have what's needed when the time comes. But you, David, you have blood on your hands. You've been a warrior, and I don't want somebody with blood on his hands building my house. So there was reason to what God was doing and preventing David from having just you know this hero worship for, forever, even inside kind of the religious community, if you want to think of it that way. But the beautiful thing is that David's response and the Lord's response to him reminds us of how the Lord really wants to to behave with us. See, you and I think that God needs us. Uh, John, Anna was just up here telling, we need you over in the children's ministry. And that's true, we do. And uh, there's people to be ministered to, and there's children, and there's parents that will be ministered to if you can help care for them. And I hope you'll take very seriously his challenge. But there's a difference between us as a church needing you and God needing you. See, we think God needs us. God does not need us. We need God. The whole point of the gospel is we think we're giving stuff up. Not really. When you give your life to Christ, it's God is then in a position to award, reward you or build you in ways that you can't imagine. God doesn't want you to necessarily build a house for him. He wants to build a house for you. That's the gospel. And it, was, it is embedded in this ancient passage that's 1,000 years before Jesus. So before we know there is a gospel, we find the God of David behaving in gospel terms. When he tells David no, and then he says, and I'm going to say no about an earthly blessing, but I'm going to give you an eternal blessing. And with that, I want you to look at the third point, and maybe you'll fill on this third. Because this is where it turns prophetic. This passage 1000 years before Jesus is a prophecy. And here's the fill in the blank. David's eternal son is Jesus. Now, I'm going to read through four verses, and I'm going to read through it slow enough so that you'll see he's not talking about Solomon here. Here's what God says to David. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Not your kingdom, his kingdom. Now, you could say, well, this could be Solomon. I agree with that one verse, it could be Solomon. But I want you to look at it as if it's Jesus' kingdom and you'll see why as we keep reading verse 13 says this he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever now when it says he'll build a house for my name Solomon did in fact build the temple for God's name but did Solomon's throne last forever no now it's not that David would understand this but the Holy Spirit knew that if what was said to David would go into Holy Scripture And sometime later, the rest of us, from our perspective, could see the prophecy that's built here. He's not talking about Solomon. He's talking about a son of David and a son of Solomon who will someday build a kingdom and a throne that will last forever. Solomon's throne did not last forever, and his family didn't last forever. Verse 14, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Who dared say, I am the son of God? Jesus, not Solomon. He goes on to say, When he does wrong, I will punish him with floggings inflicted by human hands. Many of you would say right there, Well, that, that must, you know, Jesus never did wrong. And, and uh, so I don't know why that would be about Jesus, but I want you to catch this. It's very subtle, but you've got to catch it because the gospel's here. Solomon was never flogged. Are you kidding? Solomon was the most powerful man on the planet at the time he was here. There was no flogging of Solomon, period. Then why does it talk about punishing the wrong? Because Jesus didn't die for his wrong. He died for our wrong. He was building an eternal house that is made up of individual people. Now, Sean tells us this every week. He tells us, you didn't go to church. This building is not the church. You are the church. What he means, and that's very biblical, very New Testament. It means the Holy Spirit lives in individual people. And when when you become a part of the family of Jesus, your wrongs are punished in the cross of Jesus. He takes on our punishment. He He doesn't die or isn't punished for his wrongs. He is punished for the wrongs of those of us who accept him. Now, here's the key that makes you understand it. And it says... He is flogged with human hands. Again, Solomon was never flogged. Who was flogged? Jesus was, just before his crucifixion. Now, isn't this interesting? 1,000 years before the event, the Holy Spirit is speaking to David in a way that he could sort of think he was Solomon because he probably didn't have the perspective. But if, if you read it clearly, it's like it had to be more than Solomon and beyond Solomon And you and I can see today what it is. And then look at the next verse. It's even better, I think. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Now, you may remember that Saul was chosen of God. Then he disobeyed. And there is a sense in which God took his spirit from him and placed it on on David. Now, here's the beauty of this. God promises that this son that's going to build the eternal kingdom is gonna have God's love in a way that is never taken away now why is that significant because that's the gospel God wants to place his love on you if you accept Christ now see I behaved in ways that I it would be ok I mean God would, would be right in taking his love away from me because I behaved poorly so there's a sense in which I could never say I deserve God's love but Jesus can say I deserved it because I live perfectly and when I allow Jesus to die in my place, and I accept him as my Lord and Savior, I get my sins punished by Jesus, and I receive in a way I could never deserve the love of God through Jesus Christ. It's predicted right here. And David, in a sense, what he's saying with David is, you don't get to build me a temple, but because of your faithfulness to me, and being humble to me even during the tough times, I am going to build a house for you that someday will be called the house of God or the church of the living God. That Jesus, one of your descendants, and people will not just know Jesus, they'll remember you because Jesus will be a son of David in a very realistic way. So, God is offering to all of us, and this is what I want for you I want you to have all of your sins and the punishment thereof placed on Jesus on the cross. And I want you to have the love of God that will never be taken away because Jesus earned both of them. A love you don't deserve, not being punished where you did deserve because of the gospel. That's the gospel. So what what the the natural uh, implication here is number four, that we need to humbly receive Jesus as your king. You need Jesus as your savior and your king. Now I want you to look at David's response. Even though, you know, he doesn't have all the things that I've uh, communicated that we understand through the New Testament, here's what David's response, and I love this. Then King David prayed, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me thus far? How great you are, sovereign Lord! There is no one like you, there is no God but you. Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house, do as you have promised. So that your name will be great, not that my name will be great. See, he's appropriate. He's taking the humbling of being told, No, you can't build the, the temple. You, you, you do what you said you're going to do, Lord, not so that I'll be great, but so that your name will be great. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel. I don't know if you know this, but in Romans chapter 9, 10, or 11, it teaches that the church is grafted into, the, into Israel. We are a part of the true Israel of God. We are the people of God, saying the Lord Almighty is great. Now, I want you to receive Jesus. Now, as I sort of turn the corner, I, to, I need to tell you a story. and It's a story that actually was told to me uh, a week ago Saturday, uh, just a week ago yesterday. A uh, little, little backdrop. <clears throat> uh, Shirley heard one, our, a couple on our worship team, and they were actually leading, uh, leading us, and they'll be leading us here again in just a minute. But they wanted to get married, and, and they thought maybe they were just going to have to go to the courthouse. And they said this in front of my wife, and she said, Well, I, I don't have much, but you can you get married in my backyard. It's kind of nice. And so they took us up on it. So we had a, a wedding of a beautiful young couple here in our church worship team last Saturday in my backyard. Now, when my wife offered that they could get married in my backyard... She had just had back surgery, and we had to clean up the backyard. Who do you think was going to do the cleaning again? Does anybody else have wives that volunteer them for stuff, and you didn't even realize you, were, you, weren't, in the, you weren't even there for the conversation? And you realize later, like, wait a minute. You said we, but you can't do nothing. You got a back surgery. You can't pick up nothing. That means me, at any rate. Which... Caused me, it caused us to invite uh, our friend Adrian. He's a young black man, just graduated from tech school. He's 31 years old. We've had a friendship with him for about 17 years. And so we called him and said, Could we hire you to do this? And, uh, and, and so he came over and, and we paid him for a day's labor and doing all the stuff that I couldn't do. And, and we got it done and it was, it was great. But and I drove him home. And the rest of what I'm going to tell you is based on what I heard from the car from my house to taking him home to his apartment in, uh, in Clovis but I need to back up you gotta get the context of his life and our history with him uh, I met Adrian because Shirley had him in the seventh grade PE class and she said she'd never seen a young man as a young, young black kid at that time who was so closed he never looked you in the eye, he always looked down he had almost no affect or words and uh, he was just like like in a little box uh, it, and she was like man I've never seen anybody that inward, I, what, what is the deal? so she went and read from his QM file what had gone on in his life so she could figure out how to minister better with him as a teacher and in his QM file they found out that he was a fabulous normal kid until second grade and then things began to fall apart and he began getting in trouble so she dug deeper and found out that his mother had died, not just died but as we found out later he walked in and found his mother dead. Now he'd never known his dad he only had his mother who was a druggie and she overdosed when he was seven years old and he was left without moorings in the world and he he was moved from there to his grandmother's house who was a wonderful uh, warm Christian lady uh, in uh, kind of in southern Fresno, south south end of Fresno. And one, just a few months before Shirley met Adrian in her class, Adrian walked in and found his grandmother dead. Now, I, there's no way to really say, I, I don't know how to say all. Oh, I just give you that. Those are indicators. He was a, a life without mooring. Uh, n- n- no father, no mother, now no grandmother, just nobody. And he just went dark. It's just like the, the eyes went down and darkness settled in. And oh, it, it just, and so she found out if, you know, she, she actually volunteered me to mentor him. Which, again, I find interesting how wise volunteers for all kinds of stuff that we didn't know we were going to do. But I thought, no, that'd be fine. But I just don't, I don't live where he lives. I don't know any of that. I don't know how to reach him. And she said, well, just try to mentor him as best you can so I remember going out now he agreed to this we asked him would you be interested he said he would so I would pick him up out in southeast Fresno and I would drive him over to, uh, to, to the house and this was when he was 13 years old and, and he would he would look down he wouldn't say three words in a row I would try to talk and then I'd ask him a question you get a one or two word answer and it's not that he wasn't happy but he was just closed C- can you get the picture there? So I tried to m- mentor him in math, and then Shirley had horses, and so we said, well, maybe we'll take horseback riding lessons together. I'll take lessons, you can take lessons. And I remember he enjoyed that quite a bit. And so we stayed involved in his life over time while he was in junior high a lot, and then when he went to high school, we'd go to his high school football games and take him and his friends out to, uh, like to eat afterwards. And then after high school, we sort of lost track until he came back into our lives about a year ago. And he had had a child uh, out of wedlock, a, a young daughter, who, uh, and it was, now, now I guess what, what I should do is, is tell you what he told me on the way home from my house last Saturday. So we got in the car, and we headed uh, to his apartment in Clovis, and he talked the whole time, <laughs> from closed to alive. And he talked excitedly and full of hope and uh, joy. And here was the story he told me. He said, when my daughter was born, it was the first time that I felt love awaken in my heart again since I lost my mom and my grandma. He said, I just didn't know love. And when my daughter was born, some God had used her birth, as awkward as it was, because they're, they're not married and they're not together and he's a single parent. He said, as awkward as that was, God used it to birth love in my heart for someone other than myself. And as she began to come up and get ready to go to school, school age, she's seven right now and in second grade. uh, So he contacted us a year ago and brought her out to to play with the horses and ride horses, which she just loved. And uh, he said, I realized I didn't want my daughter growing up in the system the socioeconomic system that I was stuck in when I grew up. And I thought to myself, God, where, how could I protect my daughter and give her a better future? And he said, then I remembered, I remembered visits to Clovis. I got to tell you, this breaks my heart, and yet it warms my heart, because I, I didn't know at the time if I was doing anything for him. He had a vision of when he drove to our house with horses and openness, and happy people and real families he's told my wife you're the nearest thing to a mom i've ever had when he wanted better for his daughter he thought of my wife and clovis and he said i got to get my my daughter out of here so he moved from where he and she were and found an apartment in clovis and he said all of my old friends told me you think you're better than us and they just ragged on us and beat on us, but he said, I was determined. My daughter was going to have good teachers and, and you know, great uh, environment. And he was, he was just thrilled with what was going on. He double-checks the teacher. He didn't just... It's not just that he's in the Clovis schools. He checks the teacher she's going to get each time. And then he told me that, you know, I was on welfare, and I found this welfare-to-work program, so uh, I, I got trained for... And I've got my first job coming up. And then he said this, he said, none of this would happen except God has been with me all the way. And it's like, you know that. He says, oh yeah, I know I'm not big enough to get out of the stuck place I was. And I know God used my daughter and my desire for better for her, and then he started opening doors and I walked through them. And every, all the blessings that I have at this point, including the new job that's starting, is from God himself. And I couldn't have done it without him. And it's just like, Oh, my gosh. You need a God like that. You need a God like that. The friends you know that aren't making it need a God like that. They need to know the gospel, and a God like that can bring raise you up from humble beginnings, and it doesn't matter how broken or de- desperate or difficult. It's never impossible with God. And this is where I invite you to. And I want to invite the band out because they're going to lead us in a song in a minute, but I want to lead you in a prayer first. You, I want for you what Adrian found. And sometimes it's a long, crooked road. Probably took Adrian from the time we met him, and you know I, I don't know when exactly he turned it around, but there's probably 12, 14 years in there where it probably wasn't all it ought to be, but, but, but there were sowings of the gospel that finally took root and began to grow. I want that for you. And I would ask you, why wouldn't you give your life to Christ? Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you so much for the scriptures today. And I thank you that you, Lord, give us hope. And Lord, I thank you that it's not that you want something from us, but through Christ Jesus, you want to give something to us. You want to join our life in a way that when we're humble and obedient and living by faith, you can raise us up out of all stuck situations. And, Lord, when we hear no out of things in life, we know that if we trust you, it can work for our good. So, Lord, if there's anybody here, and I just want to speak to you with our heads bowed, if you've never accepted Christ, would you do so today? Just pray this prayer with me in your heart. You don't have to say anything out loud. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, would you forgive my sins? I know I've been running my own life and I've had my back turned to you and it's not working so good. Lord, forgive my sins. Jesus, thank you that you were willing to die on a cross not for what you did wrong, but for what I've done wrong. And I ask that the love of God, which is there available through Jesus Christ, would come into my heart That, Holy Spirit, you would come in and begin to change me from the inside out. That I might join the house of God, the family of God. And that you might lead me from this point forward. Be my Savior, my Lord, my King, my Guide, my Counselor, my Master. And then help me to grow in this newfound faith. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. They're going to lead us in a song now that says, I surrender. I invite you to sing from the heart that you surrender to the Lord.